in this study that we're, we're in in Philippians, uh, growing in Christian love, uh, we're going to experience several examples of, of love. And hopefully these examples that we're going to take a look at in the scriptures are going to instruct us and, and they will inspire us just as we've been inspired by so many pictures on the news so that we'll be constantly growing in that uh, Christian love. There are three examples, primary examples, that we're going to see in this very short book. And uh, here they are. The first one is we're going to see Paul's love for Jesus. Just how much Paul, the Apostle Paul, loved his Savior, loved Christ. And it's going to be wonderful to see that bleed through all of his letter. The second example of love is Paul's love for somebody called Timothy. Now, I resonate with that name. And uh, in fact, I was named after Timothy in the Bible. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a tremendous love relationship with this young man, Timothy. And we're going to talk about that as we go. And then there was a third love. There may be some others, but a third love that we're going to see stand out in the study of this book, this letter, is Paul's love for one particular church. Now, he loved all of the churches, to be sure. But he had a unique love for one particular church, and it was the Philippian church. And we're going to sense his heart just resonating with love and appreciation for this body of believers. I can't help but think that long before I ever even knew there was a Lakeview Wesleyan church, that there were people in the life of this church that were resonating with God's heart and his passion for for world evangelism, not only in the local setting, but also in the world, that there are people today who have known the love of this church in a unique way. And they're making special effort to be with us in the next couple of weeks as, as best they can to be able to just say thank you for your loving outreach. Thank you for reaching into your pocketbooks. Thank you for praying for a number. And, and when God sent the, the money, you, you were faithful to put it in. And we are, we are building our programs and our ministry on those love gifts. Um, it happens to be the only letter that Paul wrote that does not have words of correction or, or problem solving in the life of the church. So in all of his other letters, he's, he's addressing certain issues, certain problems that creep up in just almost any church just to be it's like being married. It's tough. It's not easy to be married and have a good, positive, uh, growing relationship. It's tough for two people to come together from different walks of life and to, to strike up a wonderful relationship. And you have these, these uh, good times and you have hard times. Every relationship has that. Friendships and whatever it may be. And churches have that. And they have their good times and they have their hard times. And uh, Paul, in all of his other letters, is addressing some of the hard places. But not this one. This one has no words of correction. There's no problem solving that's going on uh, to, the, to the Philippian church. It's a letter filled with examples of love in the midst of all that he models how to live above our circumstances. This is the wonderful thing. God is teaching us through this book of Philippians how we can live above the circumstances of life. Slave or free, rich or poor, leader or just regular folks, we can live above the circumstances that come into our lives because we all face trials and we all can benefit by an example of someone who never let the hard places in life get him off track with God. 
So the opening scripture that we shared, uh, and I'll read it for you again, it's a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul stayed on track with that. Paul never let the hard, and he had really hard places. He never let the hard places in his life get him off track of developing his Christian love for others and staying in love with Jesus. And I'm looking forward to my own faith being strengthened and the the times in my life when I have challenges and things when I'm disappointed and I have discouragement and, and, and difficult things that come in. So, oh God, please teach us more about loving one another and living strong no matter what the circumstances may be that come into our lives. Amen. Last week I had someone, I didn't ask permission, so I'm not going to use names, but I think uh, he won't mind if I tell the story. But after the service, I had uh, a wonderful brother uh, come up to me, and he said, I have a perfect example of what you were talking about in terms of living above the circumstances that happen in our lives. And he said, I was a preacher at a church. It was a Sunday morning. I was about, I was 30 some years old and I had preaching on my mind that morning and I was informed that morning that my wife had passed away. So he's telling me during that difficult day, he said, many people came to my house and they bemoaned, and that was the word he used, they bemoaned the fact that my wife had died. And he said, I found myself in a strange circumstance. What was strange about it? That I was being called upon to encourage the hearts of these people while my own heart was yearning for comfort. Isn't that amazing? See, that, that's the kind of That's the kind of faith that the Apostle Paul has demonstrated even in the hard places that oftentimes we are called upon to give and to continue to give even when in our own experience we need to be ministered to. I thought that's a tremendous testimony of love for God and trust in God. This is living above our circumstances as we walk through life with Jesus. And it's a great walk. Well, let's get our geographic bearings. We did this last week uh, before we read. I'm going to read the same couple of of, uh, verses that we started with last week. Now, remember, we're we're focusing on one particular city, but this morning I want us to focus on two cities. The first city is Philippi, and we've got the the map up there, and so we've got a green dot. Someone's got a green dot, and so there's there's Philippi right up just, just slightly above the green dot, okay? And the second city that we want to concentrate on is down here just above Cyprus, just above Cyprus, and it's a city called Lystra or Lystra, however you want to pronounce it. I want us to be just, as you look at the map, these are the two cities we want to zero in on. We also want to point out that uh, the city of Lystra is going to, to be tied in with the life of Timothy. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. So let's read these two verses that we started with last week. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants, 
of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's walk through that just a little bit, and I won't even get all the way through this, but let's, let's just take those, that, first, that first line there, and let's see if we can extract and milk some things from it that would be an encouragement to us that maybe we might not think about at a casual reading. Paul and the younger Timothy, you need to know this. They were tight. If you understand what I mean by tight, they were, the, they, they were close. They were the best of friends. They were like father and son, like two brothers. And so I want to share some facts with you about that relationship between Paul and Timothy. And then I want to challenge you to ask yourself some questions about uh, relationships. And here are three questions that I'm going to talk to you just a little bit about Paul and Timothy and their love relationship. But I want you to think about these three questions personally as I talk about this. First question, who am I close to in the faith? Now, I'm going to talk to us about how Paul and Timothy are close to each other in the faith. Who are you close to when it comes to the faith? Now, I'm going to give a couple, three answers here, just my answer on this first one. I won't answer the rest of them for you, but just so you can get an idea. So who am I? So who's Pastor Tim? Who did he name that he's close to in the faith? Well, I will tell you that the person that I am absolutely the closest to in the faith is my wife, Cynthia. We dialogue about faith things all the time. Our lives have been built around serving God in a faith community. Uh, everything about our, our family life and our raising our children and everything has been about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so when I think about that, who am I close to in the faith? Cynthia. Is there anybody else that I'm close to in the faith? Yeah, my mom. My mom is a tremendous lover of Jesus, always has been. And so I can talk to my mother about almost anything under the sun when it comes to spiritual things. She's very comfortable, and uh, I feel good about it, and she has always given me good counsel, and I know that she prays for me, and even if she doesn't know an answer to something or have wisdom about something, I know that she will pray. And so she's another person that I would choose. Now, I'm not going to name anyone in the life of this church because that would, uh, that would create issues or could create issues for people. So I'm not going to do that. But who else am I close to in the faith? Well, I would say a, a fellow by the name of Bill. And he's been a prayer partner of mine for almost 30 years now. And I can pick up the phone and I can call Bill and we can have a spiritual conversation in a heartbeat like we had just been with each other yesterday, even though most of the time it is six months, sometimes a year before we ever see one another. So who are you close to in the faith? I'm not talking about your family. I'm not talking about even someone that you just love. I'm talking about in the Christian faith, who would you name? Second question, who am I investing in spiritually? Who are you investing in spiritually? 
I said I wouldn't answer, and so, so I'm not going to do that, other than to say that I've made, it, I've made it as much of my business as I knew how to invest in my children, spiritually speaking. But I've also invested in a lot of people over the years. Sometimes those investments have paid off, and sometimes they've gone awry. Uh, I, I can tell you, I'll give you an example of one here. This is a, this is a, a sweet one here. It was uh, at... Uh, 619 this morning and I'd already been uh, meeting with the Lord and working on these things for a couple of hours by this time but it says good morning pastor covering you and your team at Lakeview in prayer this morning may our great and mighty God give you great strength and encouragement to preach teach and encourage the people today he alone is our strength and our refuge in times of prosperity and also in times of great struggle and strife Praying for the Holy Spirit to work and move through you today, Pastor. Blessings. And so I wrote back, and you as well. Thank you. May you experience spiritual breakthroughs as you faithfully and patiently lead. I was proud of the way you conducted the street wedding. Sorry we didn't get time to talk. That's the sweetness that I have with a former uh, associate assistant pastor here. The names don't matter, but it's that sweetness of investing in someone and feeling that that investment was not only appreciated, but it w it's been acted upon the best that he knew how. And then that becomes a blessing back to us and to me personally. And it's just a, a wonderful thing. Who are you investing in spiritually? Maybe the answer is no one right now. Well, it's something for you to think about. And here's the third question. Who am I allowing to speak into my heart concerning my faith? Who do I allow? Who do you allow to speak into your spirit and into your heart with regard to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Sometimes it's nobody. Sometimes it's certain people. Sometimes we learn that uh, we can't always count on some people, and so you have to check out how they're, if they got up on the right side of the bed, whether we can listen to them or not. You know, but who are you listening? Who do you let speak into your life and talk to you? Say, well, no, you know, uh, you know, this is my business. Or who, who are you to tell me what? Who died and made you boss? You know, that kind of a thing. No, who, who do you let speak into your life? All right, Timothy was a teenager when he met Paul. His family lived in Lystra. You saw it on the map. His dad was a Greek man, and we don't know much about his, uh, if anything, about his faith. But we do know something about Timothy's mother and his grandmother and about their faith. And they knew the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures for sure. And, and we know that they were teaching Timothy the Old Testament scriptures so that he would know how to love God. And so as these women uh, uh, appeared uh, when Paul came through on his first missionary journey, these women showed up and they obviously heard the Apostle Paul preach the gospel, which was something new to them. And apparently they believed, just like some of you. Some of you, 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 you went to a tent meeting, you went to a crusade, you went to a church service, you went to a Bible study, you, you uh, went out to eat with a friend that uh, you thought was a Bible thumper and you didn't know what to expect, but you fooled around and listened to what they said, and you, you, you believed in that gospel message. 
and you were saved from your sins as a result. And so these two women believed and apparently Timothy saw them believing and he probably even saw a couple of the miracles that Paul worked on that first trip. One of which was they stoned him. They tried to stone him out of town and uh, he didn't die. Can you imagine having big stones thrown at you and, and living through that? He didn't die. And that was miraculous to him, I, I'm sure. And so on the second missionary journey, when Paul was coming back through to visit the churches that he started, when he got to, to Lystra, a couple years later, he invited Timothy to do something really interesting. He said, why don't you come go with me and travel with me? Now that tells us right there that he's, he's, been, he's, he's had his radar up, his antenna was up to say, I'm looking, I, I could use some help along the way, I'm looking for a great candidate. And we have opportunities here being so close to uh, the universities that we have people who need to do internships all the time. They need to satisfy course requirements. But one of the things our staff are very careful about is this. We, we don't, as much as we want to help everybody satisfy their course, we're looking for those that God is sending our way. Those that God is preparing their spirit so that we can speak into their spirit. And it's not so much what they can do for us in a department or in a program, but what we can impart to them as they are in preparation of training for ministry. And so Timothy helped Paul to establish churches just like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And when Paul left Berea to go to Athens, he left Timothy and Silas behind. And Timothy was so well-versed by the time he'd spent some time with Paul that he could help them, even with doctrinal issues. Things when their theology would get off track and they needed someone to come in and say, no, no, you're getting off a little sideways there. You're getting off track and Timothy, as young as he was, was able to do that. A trustworthy friend, one who actually carried offerings, money collected by the Philippian church to help take care of Paul, even though he never really asked for that, he appreciated it. And I think that may be part of the love relationship that Paul had with the Philippian church, that even when he didn't ask, they took up collections and they said, Paul, look, just use this as you need for your own needs or if you've got some people that are in need or whatever, just let the, this offering be a blessing uh, to your ministry. And that's the kind of relationship the church was developing uh, with Paul. Six of Paul's epistles include Timothy in the salutations. So you can see Paul was really excited about this young man. The most tender and moving of Paul's letters was the last one that he wrote to Timothy while he was a prisoner in Rome. And it's really sort of like his last will and testament. It's about A.D. 67. And Paul had a sense that his life on this earth was uh, short-lived. And so the letter is, is a, a dying wish to encourage Timothy to request that he join him in his final days of imprisonment. It's a beautiful relationship. How many of you have ever read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Anybody? It was uh, written 1563, 1563, but it was written several centuries later after all of, all of Paul and Timothy. But Timothy remained in Ephesus until A.D. 97. And during a pagan celebration of a feast called Catagogian, 
Timothy severely reproved the people in the procession for what's called ridiculous idolatry. And you know what they did? It made them so angry that they beat him up. And they beat him up so badly that two days later he died. That's the relationship that Timothy and Paul had. I believe every true believer in Jesus needs to be seeking and saving the lost. That's what this says, seek and save the lost. And every true believer needs to be investing in someone. Someone that we can pass the baton to at some point. Who do you have in your life that you're investing in? Who are understanding something about your spiritual heritage, your passion to serve Jesus, your love for God, your courage to stay on track, even when the circumstances of life are difficult. Who are you investing in that will be able to take that zeal and that passion and that drive and that love for Jesus and take it on after you and I are gone if Jesus tarries? So if you don't have someone like that, here's, here's a suggestion. If you're married, start with your spouse. If you're married, start with your spouse. And your children, if you have children, if you're in that circumstance. Now, if you're not married, you don't have children, then start with your circle of friends. What person in your circle of friendships is God directing you to invest in spiritually? So here's a great question for you to ponder. And if you could take a little deep breath and say, at 20 minutes till 12, and he, he promises he won't be too much longer. Make sure you get this. This is, this is like 400 series class in college, right here. Here's the question. Are my friends, is my wife or my husband, are my children closer to God as a result of being caught up in my life. Are they? Are your children closer to God because you're the father or you're their mother? Is your wife, if you're married, closer to God than she was in the first place because she married you and your spiritual influence has nurtured her and loved her even though she's on her own? Everybody's on their own to develop their walk with God. But as a result of being in that relationship, is your husband closer to God as a result of being married to you? Are your children closer to God as a result of being brought up in your home? Are your friends that you hung out with last night or last week closer or farther away from God as a result of our influence in their lives. Well, I, I, that just humbles me when I think about it. It humbles me. And it makes me want to run, not walk to God, but run to God and say, God, have mercy. I have blown it a few times with my spouse. I have blown it a few times with my kids. I have blown it a few times with the leaders in my churches. I have blown it a few times with my friends. God, have mercy. 
I want them to be able to stand before you one day and say, God, thank you for this friend. Thank you for this husband. Thank you for this wife. Thank you for this dad or mom because I got to know you better because of who they are. Wow, that's sobering, isn't it? It's wonderful. If you, if you didn't write anything else down, you ought to write that down somewhere. Don't let that question get away from you. It'll hold you in the hard places. Well, in my studies, I ran across something from Howard and William Hendricks that I found interesting when it comes to investing in someone for Jesus. And so it goes like this. It has to do with mentoring and, and pouring your life into someone, whether it's a child, whether it's a friend, whether it's a spouse or, or whatever. Potential, it's a potential mentor inventory. And so it goes like this. You may be wondering whether you are cut out to serve as another person's mentor. So answer these questions to help you evaluate your suitability. Okay, so here they are. You won't be able to write all these down, but just one or two of these might just stand out. Number one, are you a person of patience? Do you take the long range view or usually the short range view? Uh, what is your area of competence? In what skills are you qualified? And what is your specific area of expertise? You know, we just had a meeting, a trustee meeting before the, the Sunday school, during Sunday school hour, and we're talking about our roof, and we'll be coming back to you to talk about our roof needs here one of these days. But these, these, are, these are men that uh, many of them work with this very same kind of issue on their jobs. And they have a certain expertise, and you can just tell. I'm sitting there, and I'm amazed at, at, at their comments. I'm amazed at their experience and their background. It's like, man, I wouldn't have thought of that. I'm glad they're on the team. I'm glad they're a trustee. It's really helping us make an intelligent decision. What is your area of competence? How strong are your interpersonal skills? Are your relationships generally pretty healthy? Or do you find that you struggle with your relationships? That might have a bearing on mentoring. Uh, are you, are you process-oriented? Or are, are you capable of sticking with people over time while they develop? You know, if you begin to pour yourself into a person and the person doesn't respond well at first, so you're going to kick them out, kick them to the curb, uh, say, well, no, I don't, I'm not going to spend any more time with you. I didn't pay off. You, that was a, you did two stupid things since I started working with you. So, so forget about it. Just forget it. Uh, so, or, or are you willing to take risks? Are you able to take risks with people and invest in people? Are you willing to accept responsibility to help someone else grow? Say, oh, well, no, it's just about me, my family, my husband, my kids. And, and uh, my work, and that's pretty much all I got time for. Okay, so if you're, not, if you're not willing to accept to give some time, then it's probably better not to do that. Is your character worth emulating? Would God approve of someone adopting your behaviors, attitudes, values, language, and mannerisms? It's scary to pour yourself into someone else's life and realizing how many, how many shortcomings each one of us has. It's sort of like, uh, I'm not going to try to help anybody. I got too much wrong. They might pick up on all the wrong stuff and be worse off because they met me. That'd be a sad thing. Or are, are you, are, is there any sin or unhealthy situation that you have not addressed that could possibly damage your relationship with another person? Oh, I was doing really good, Pastor, until I found out someone told me about you. What are you talking about? Well, we might know what they're talking about. God forbid we have something like that hidden. Or have you settled the question 
of Christ's lordship over your life? Are you fundamentally committed to honoring Jesus in every area of your life? Wow, that was from the book, As Iron Sharpens Iron, Howard and William Hendricks. You can look it up. There's a whole lot more in there. It's a lot of responsibility to pour yourself to invest in another person's spiritual well-being. But we all need to consider it if we truly love the Lord and love one another. And so Paul took a risk with young Timothy. He probably, you know, he probably wasn't sure how it was all going to take, but it certainly worked out in this case. Sharing not only the good that the other person needs to hear, but also sharing the not-so-good that often haunts us like a relentless demon. Can you, picture, can you picture Paul and Timothy? I did this early this morning. I was just thinking about it, and I thought, okay, so they're traveling on these missionary journeys together, and they go, in most cases, you know, we don't read about them uh, living in tents and, you know, a little whatever, we, but, but we do read about them uh, often staying in the homes of, of people in the churches where, that they started. And oftentimes, the, the place where they, they rested would be on the rooftop. In that climate, in that culture, a lot of times they'd spend time on the roof. So can you picture Timothy and Paul lying up on a rooftop in someone's home, and they're gazing up into God's marvelous sky, and looking at hundreds and thousands and millions of stars and planets, and Paul is thinking about his investment in this young man, but quietly, secretly, he's got this thought running through his mind. You know, Timothy, in the name of religion, I killed a bunch of people, and I put a bunch of people in jail, and I tore up a lot of families and homes, and hurt a lot of kids, all in the name of religion until I met Jesus. And you know, Timothy, I really struggle with that some days. Pray for me. You got anything like that in your world? You got anything you wish you could do it over again? You got anything that a Monday quarterback opportunity, you would have changed a couple of the plays and said, oh my goodness, I'm trying to pour into some young intern's life. And oh God, every once in a while the devil reminds me, I don't have any business talking to anybody about anything. I'm a wretch when it comes to what I'm remembering that I did. Wow. So here we have these two generationally challenged, one young and one older, walking together through life. And he describes them as bond servants. Now, if you were with us in the study of James, we already talked about bond servants. Paul and Timothy were bond servants of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to try quickly to just touch on something I felt the Lord put on my heart. And uh, it's taken a little time to do it, but I, I want to honor it. Bond servants, the term bond servants is from the Greek doulos. And most of you know that. You remember that. Kirk Thompson and I had a talk about that last night at Overflow before it started. And, and he reminded me how we taught about that. It means a person who is owned by someone else. Someone who is subservient to and dependent upon the owner. And in the context of Christian faith, Paul refers to himself as subservient to 
and dependent upon Jesus Christ. Would you say that's where you are? Would you say that's your relationship with Jesus? So, so the concern is that this should not be interpreted as an inappropriate view of class distinctions, bondservant. We shouldn't have an inappropriate view of class distinctions. The proper sense in which to understand how he seems, sees himself in relations to Jesus Christ, as one commentator suggested, is as a person... Now think, think, of, think about this. Is this me? Can I say this? It's a person, a bondservant is a... In, Christ, in Christian terms, a bondservant is a person who is willing, not forced, to be in that kind of a relationship with Jesus. I'm willing... I'm not being forced into this. I am a willing servant of Jesus. Secondly, I am determined by my own personal desire to serve Jesus. You didn't call me here to lead this church and then have to make me love Jesus. That would have been, ter that would have been a terrible choice. I, I, I shared in my testimony that I willingly, in my heart, I desire to serve Jesus. I don't get it right all the time, but it's my desire. I'm not forced, and I'm determined. It's in my, my determination. I, I determined to finish the race. I determined to run five miles, and I'm not going to quit at four and a half. God helping me, I'm going to finish the race, and it's on me. And thirdly, one who is totally devoted. A bondservant is one who is, to Jesus, totally devoted. Now, if you get anywhere around me, I can drive you, I can drive others, I can drive other pastors, I can drive anybody that just is around me. I, I have an ability to drive people crazy over one thing, maybe several, but one thing for sure. I love the church. And anybody messes with the church, and namely this church, has had it with me. I am so sold on the local church of Jesus Christ that I can't, I, nothing else matters to me when I'm talking to people. And I know it gets on people's nerves sometimes, but I can't help it. It's my desire, it's what I've chosen to do. And I don't do it by compulsion, I do it because I want to. Because I, I have fallen in love with Jesus. And he said, love his bride like he loves his bride. And so this church, Lakeview, is a part of his bride. And so I love it like I love my, my wife. I love the church. And, and you should love the church by your own desire, not because the pastor whipped you up into a frenzy or because we had the music people get us a really emotional song and I know how that works and we get a whole bunch of people down the altar that way no it's because you decided that God spoke to your heart and in your heart motivated by your own desire and passion for what Jesus did for you you decided to follow Christ it's a tremendous bond this bond servant thing is a tremendous image so ever since I, I started working on this passage, I, I felt impressed to speak to the issue of race relations because it's become such an issue in our world and, and in America. 
in particular. It's difficult to speak on the subject of slavery, bond servant, bond slave. You use the term slave and it's like it's an ugly word today. And I wouldn't argue with it. But let me say this to you. God did not invent slavery. God did not invent slavery. Romans 1.30 tells us who invented slavery. Let me read it, see if you catch it. Romans 1.28. And just as, talk about people who don't love Jesus and don't follow Him. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Slavery is not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and their gossips, slanderers. They talk negatively about people behind their back and haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. All right, catch this one. This next one. This is it. Inventors of evil. That's where slavery came from. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So where did slavery come from? It came from the inventors of evil. Mankind. Our own stupid ideas of how to develop a culture. If you do a study of slavery, you'll discover all over the world, and there are different kinds of slavery, quite frankly. But the kind of slavery, and if you, if, if you will forgive me for using certain terms that, that I don't mean to be offensive at all, but just so we can put this on the table and talk about it. The kind of slavery of, of black people by white people between the 16th and the 19th centuries, and sadly is still going on in some people's hearts and minds and some cultures even to this day in many places, that kind of slavery was particularly harsh and evil. Can I get an amen on that? That was evil. Absolutely evil. It was not the same in nature regarding the culture of slavery that we read about in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. You see, sin produced slavery of all sorts. And it became a part of the human culture around the world. And here's what I believe God did. Man invented it. Man brought it to light. Man began to practice it. And, and so, some were more harsh and ugly and vulgar than other forms. But man produced it. Sin produced it. And so because it was there, because it was particularly harsh, and because it was particularly damaging to people, God spoke instructions regarding proper treatment of people, regardless of their circumstances. He never did, nor did Jesus ever endorse slavery. What they endorse is that all men and women are equal and should be treated as such, regardless of whatever circumstance you are in. So if we go back to the Old Testament, we find people who were slaves on the basis of different circumstances or conditions. You have slaves as a result of the fact that Israel was in a big battle and a war with surrounding nation. And so when Israel would win, 
the, the captives would be brought in and, and they would become slaves in some cases. Or you have slaves who are the result of they needed money. They were broke. They had nothing to work with. They're trying to take care of their family. They are trying to get a home. They're trying to, to make their way in life and they had no hope whatsoever. And so they chose to become a bond servant, a bond slave, so that the person who, who laid the money out for them would give them a, a, a seed start for their efforts of taking orders and, and living at their disposal. And that would last for six years. And in the seventh year, they would be set free. Now, sometimes the slave would choose to stay, but they didn't have to. And just like you don't have to stay with Jesus, but you choose to because He set you free. And then thirdly, people who are born to a parent who was a slave could make a person a slave. Let me give you a quote from uh, uh, Hodge and Taylor, two, two different people. And let me just read this to you, uh, and I, I'm out of time. The first thing we need to say is that neither slavery in New Testament times nor slavery under the Mosaic Covenant had anything to do with the sort of slavery where black people were bought and sold as property by white people in the well-known slave trade over the last few centuries. No white Christian should think that they can use any slightly positive comment about slavery in these scripture sections to justify the historic slave trade, which is still a major stain on the histories of both the United States and the United Kingdom, unquote. In fact, 1 Timothy 1.8 says this, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, and listen to this, and immoral men and homosexuals, and in some cases your version may say kidnappers. It is from the Greek word andropodon, and it means slave trader. Immoral men, homosexuals, and slave traders, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Back to another quote. White on black slavery was opposed by Christians such as William Wilberforce, not by examining passages on slavery, because the slaveries were of a different type. Racial slavery was opposed because it was seen to be contrary to the value that God places on every human being and the fact that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, Acts 17.26. So the use of the term one blood is so significant. If races were really of different bloods, then we could not all be saved by the shedding of the blood of one Savior. It is because the entire human race is descended from one man, Adam, that we know we can trust in one Savior, Jesus Christ. Unquote. In fact, the Wesleyan Church came into his ex existence in part as a result of Christians who stood against owning slaves. So I'm out of time.
There's so much in these first two verses that can help us. One, seeing the importance of lovingly and deliberately investing in another person's life, as Paul did with Timothy, it's a challenge for all of us. Secondly, noting Timothy's teachable spirit is a challenge to all of us. Are you teachable? So I didn't like what the pastor said today. Oh, really? Was that, is, that, is that because you know it all or because I'm an idiot and I keep making lots of mistakes and you figured that out? Or is it because maybe you've got a stiff spirit and you're not very teachable? What is your teachable spirit like? And thirdly, knowing that we have this common thread of Adam's blood flowing through all of our veins should help us properly consider people from a wide variety of backgrounds as being equal. There should be no hint of one-upmanship regarding classes of people through true believers. We're one people with one blood given to sin, but able by faith to be saved from the slavery to sin by one man's blood flowing down Calvary's tree. We are one in Christ. And the challenge to the church, and I hope this goes all over the internet that somebody will catch this, the church must teach this to the culture. Because you can't, you can't get that problem with the races fixed by breaking out store windows or shooting people or the like. It needs to be, they need to be taught a better thing. They need to be taught the kinds of things Paul is giving us. And so take it deep in your spirit. Teach it to your kids. Teach it to the, the, the people that you have influence over. And let us take it to the nations. And this is how our culture can change. So are you in? I hope so. Stand with me. Thank you. God's good and he loves us. He loves you. And so I'm so thankful that this is uh, a, a multi-dimensioned uh, uh, congregation. I am thankful for every person of color who attends this church. God bless you. And some of us white people ought to go help some of the others uh, penetrate so that we can all act and behave like it's going to be one day when we get to heaven. It's going to be all of us, one blood and one Savior. Amen. If you don't know him, you can know him. Don't leave this place without asking. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these folks. They've been so kind to study the word and to listen so attentively. I thank you for their lives and I pray God that uh, I have not uh, muddied anything or that I've not said anything that would have been discouraging to anyone. I, I, my heart is to uplift them and, and to, uh, to help to enable them uh, to better things. Forgive me where I fail and forgive my stammering tongue. Straighten it out, Holy Spirit, as only you can do. And I pray that you will give us victory in many areas of our lives. And I pray that you will help our culture and that you will help us in America to be the kind of people you've called us to be, of loving, growing in Christian love. Thank you for Philippians. We love you. Watch over us as we go our separate ways today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.